Hello, this is Eden on KMIH 88.9 The Bridge. I'm back with my show, Garden of Eden. It's Garden of Eden, and I'm your host. I talk about what I like most. Garden of Eden. <laughs> Wowie, what a day it is today. Uh, I honestly can't believe I'm saying this, but I am joined with Dallas Clayton, artist and writer, known for his books, Lily the Unicorn, and It's Never Too Late, a kid's book for adults, and his an awesome book series, a believer in dreams, a spreader of positivity, and now a guest on Garden of Eden. Dallas Clayton, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. What a cool introduction. I feel really <laughs> warm inside. So I think we should start with you talking a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, I, I, at the core of it, I write things, um, children's books. Uh, is probably the core competency, but in today's modern age, I don't think anyone does one thing. So sometimes I paint on buildings, sometimes I make cartoons, sometimes people take the things I make and put them on products that I could never make on my own. Sometimes I write um, movies and things. Um, there's a lots of stuff, but mostly I'm just a guy trying to figure out why we exist. Okay. Uh, I, I know that when you started writing kids books, you didn't have much experience doing art. And I'm curious how you started writing and then your journey with art and how you kind of began this venture and got your name out there as Dallas Clayton. Sure, sure. Okay. So, I mean, the short story version of it, the Mickey Mouse version of it is that I wrote a kids book for my son, um, who at the time um, of writing it, when you have a child, or at least when I did, you would get the same sort of books every year for Christmas or for birthdays, and they were all really good books, like Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein and The Giving Tree and Where the Wild Things Are, but they were all like 30 or 40 years old, and so I felt like at the time, the types of books that I wanted to read to him weren't necessarily being made. Uh, in a contemporary sense. So I thought I would take a stab at it. And I made a book for my son called An Awesome Book. And then I tried to get it published, which I thought would be an easy thing. And it turned out not to be. And so I got turned down by a bunch of different publishers. So I thought, well, I'll just make this book myself. And also in that process, because I'm a writer first and foremost, I wanted someone to draw the book, but that turned out to be a process as well. So I just thought I'd draw it myself. And so then I learned how to draw and how to make books sort of simultaneously. And then I put the book out and it became pretty popular and people liked it. And that was affirmative for me. And so then I made more books and traveled around and sold them and gave them to people and read them to people. And then as I mentioned earlier, that sort of expanded into um, kind of a whole universe, which is to say like, oh, this book could be this thing. This book can be this idea. This drawing can be put on uh, and, and used in this application. And then the world just sort of expanded in a way that felt very organic. And I kind of just chased that expansion via different outlets, different um, mediums, social media, as, as you are well aware, uh, is, is sort of like a constant um, incoming call, you know? So the more that you put out, the more people give back, the more commentary there is, the more people send emails like you, and th then you get this chance to um, answer those calls rather than necessarily 
having to wake up each morning and think about what calls you want to make. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. And you talk about this, you felt like something was missing in the modern era in, in children's mm. books. So what, what do you want to bring? What do you feel was missing? And then your venture in the awesome book series, uh, like what are they about and how do they mm. fulfill what was missing? Sure. Well, I guess I would preface that by saying that currently, I don't think there's anything missing. I think at the time, which was about a decade ago, there was a lot missing, but I think maybe I just might've been ahead of a wave or I just had a kid really young for my class of people, to be honest. And so I think a lot of the illustrators and graphic designers and authors and people that have doubled down on, on using social media as a tool for good have really, really, really broken up that broken open that um that uh, maybe lack of content um but yeah at the time it was just very very like um shiny glossy big bright colors and like the books were and there's no shade on this but a lot of them were like about like cupcakes and sparkly dresses and like objects and anthropomorphized animals and to a degree that it just felt like none of them were about um, emotions or um, ideologies or theses about just the things that you would want to give a kid and when you have a kid I suppose when even when you don't have a kid what you want to give back to the world is um, everything that you've learned as sort of a primer or a, a guide for how to be so my first book was about the idea of having big dreams and not giving up on those dreams. And um, that was a message that I thought was really important for my son. It didn't seem like anybody was really addressing that primarily in the children's space at the time, though now I would say it's almost a meme. Um, uh, and so then what I realized is that um, I wanted to create something that could be a parallel for both my son and for my friends at the time who were, I would say in their mid twenties and going through that stage of, um, am I really doing what I wanna be doing, you know? And so you're talking to your child about how they should have dreams and not give up on them. And, and that's uh, when they're in a magical state. And then you're also talking to your friends about how maybe their dreams are also things that, that they should be chasing as wildly and as passionately as possible if given the opportunity. And then from there, the series and the books and the ideas that I continue to chase sort of complemented that. So like, for instance, when I first started touring schools with an awesome book, the notion of dreaming big has, has one ideology, but when you get out into the world, what you realize is that what your big dream and someone else's big dream might not be the same thing. So if you go to a school and you're telling a kid that, that they should dream the biggest dream, but for them, the biggest dream is like to have electricity or to be able to go to college, you know, to tell them that that's not a wild enough dream that they should dream about, you know, conquering the world in some capacity, uh, that takes on a, a whole new reality. So the, the second book that I wrote was about gratitude. You should have big dreams, but you should be thankful for all the things that you have along the way. And then from there, the themes became even more broad, love, death, childlike wonder, you know, things that, that uh, I think are at the core of most storytelling historically. Yeah. Um, so so I, I guess kind of speaking of the kid ideologies, throughout your career, you speak a lot about 
kid lessons. That's a speech that you've done and, and learning from kids and the way that they dream without barriers. Can you speak a little bit more on what we can learn from kids? Sure, sure, sure. So the question is, what do I learn from kids or what can we collectively learn from kids? I guess a little bit of both, whatever direction you'd like to take it. Okay, so first and foremost, my experience with kids comes from having one. And I would say that the main things that most people learn from having kids are, you know, a deeper sense of empathy, a deeper sense of patience, a deeper sense of recognition of your own faults. You know, like one of the things I've heard repeated often is that whenever you're mad at your kid for something or find yourself with a short fuse, chances are the thing that you're mad about exists within you. Also, the magical things are amplified. When you see your child looking quizzically at a leaf for an hour, or when you see your child getting lost in a painting, or when you see your child considering something for the very first time that to you has become so mundane and commonplace, that magic is really able to um, push you back a little bit, you know, uh, take your breath away. And, and remind you that we should all be giving pause for the magic that is around us in all capacities. And then that amplifies when your job is writing for children and your primary audience is children. Like I've probably been to more schools than I would say 99.9% of the population, right? And so as a result, I get to interact with kids in groups of all ages. Like the books that I write aren't just for kindergartners. I could be reading at a kindergarten one morning or a preschool one morning and then a college in the afternoon. What's the difference between the dreams that we're encouraging in preschoolers versus the dreams that we're encouraging in people that are in middle school, you know? And those things become illuminated the more that you see them and the more time that you spend with them. And they become, I think, just valuable guidelines to keep in your back pocket because, you know, uh, no one knows what we're doing here. So perhaps the amount of information that we get from scientists and philosophers can at times have equal value as the amount of information that we can get from a kindergartner, considering that none of us is, is playing with an even field, really. Is that fair? Yeah. And I mean, I think at different ages, these different things you're talking about apply. And I think in high school specifically, wanting to conform and keeping your dreams within reach to avoid failure is something mm. that rings super true and is something that you've talked about. Can you speak a little bit more about this? Sure. Well, I mean, I think what, what becomes apparent is, a, is the non-malleability of adults. And when you look at kids that are in kindergarten or preschool, their dreams are super malleable. They want to be a football player and the president and have a candy island and a pony. And as they get older, those dreams become less malleable because they become partitioned off or governed by actuality, you know? Oh, well, I can't do all of those things. I have to pick one. And then I have to pick one based on these 10 categories of what a job is. And then I have to chase down those realities based on the parameters that were set forth by adults who lived in a world that isn't currently my world. And so similarly for me to try to partition off the dreams of youth or for us to collectively try to partition off the dreams of youth based on historical precedent seems um, at best irresponsible and at worst a shuddering of our collective potential. So when I visit schools, what I try to remind kids of 
is that they were once and still are that child in kindergarten with five million dreams inside of them. And that though it might seem impractical and even implausible to continue to chase those dreams um, is not a duty or an obligation, but like certainly one of the greatest joys that we're afforded in this existence. That was a great answer. And I want to ask a little bit more about dreams. So you go from school to school, encouraging people to chase their dreams and not see anything as too big or out of reach or unrealistic. And I think it's a little bit easier to tell people to chase their dreams and a little bit harder to know how to do that. And this yeah. goes back to talking about high schoolers who who maybe want to do something, but they, they feel pressure to follow this linear path. Can you give a little bit of advice on that and speak more on that? I'm hesitant to give advice because one of the things I've realized in recent years is that I'm not an authority figure, that I like doing what I like doing because it's fun and it's um, rewarding to me. I've sort of defaulted to this position where a lot of the messages that I put out, people take as advice. And I think in some ways, the further that I reflect on social media as a whole, I think that that can be somewhat detrimental. We're currently in a position where we have authority figures who could give really, really helpful, technical, detailed advice about subjects. And it, it's weird that we still are looking for advice from celebrities and uh, completely unqualified goobers when so much knowledge is out there to be chased. So that will be the preface take everything I'm about to say as a uh, non-fact. But I would say um, if you have a dream that you know you want to do, that has always been inside of you, there's no reason not to chase that down. If it's a somewhat practical dream that someone has done before, like say you want to be a lawyer or um, even an athlete or something that's tangible but maybe really big and broad, like uh, the most successful business tycoon of all time or whatever, um, there's probably a template for that. Whether or not that template applies to you, probably it doesn't because you're a different person than Bill Gates, but there are certainly enough lessons at this point that exist that you could start to follow the basics, okay? Um, but if you have a dream that maybe hasn't been accomplished before or feels to you like a wild impossibility, say you want to invent something that hasn't been conceptualized or even something that exists currently but maybe is, is still brand new take like virtual reality for example right that sort of i would say in its current stage where the internet was in say 1991 right so to try to explain it to someone who isn't used to participating in it or to come up with an idea for it might be so abstract that there's really not a template and in that regard i think that's when I would say to defer to your childlike state, which is to say like, okay, um, how would I accomplish anything if I didn't know how to do it? How did I learn to write? How did I learn to walk? How did I learn to eat? How did I learn to uh, dress myself, uh, drive a car or whatever it is? Okay, well, I surrounded myself with people I trusted that would tell me when I was wrong and reinforce me when I was right, but also allow me to fail knowing that I wasn't going to die. Allow me to fall down and skin my knee and then help me back up and guide me, right? What you might not realize is your parents aren't the most qualified walkers or talkers or drivers. They weren't certified in any of those things. You learned from their weird way of doing things, which might be wrong. Like I could probably be walking better 
to be honest, if I took a course. But I know that the lesson that I get from that experience is malleable and broad enough that it can then be distilled and refined and maybe placed into my dream of creating a, a virtual reality hyperspace or whatever it is. And then beyond that, I would say like, not to get too spiritual about it, but again, if, if we don't know what we're doing here and this whole thing is sort of a guess, then there are no wrong answers. So even attempting something your entire life and seemingly not succeeding at it might in and of itself be a success because you might just be some small puzzle piece that contributes to the larger collective whole. You know, is Nikola Tesla's life a failure and Thomas Edison's life a success is only told through the lens of history, right? You might die chasing this wild reality of direct or alternating current and then only to be revealed hundreds of years later that you were on the right path. And similarly with, I think most, most things historically, you get to look back and go, oh, look at all these people that were wrong and all these people that were right. And many of the great people, uh, the greatest people that we look back at, their lives were fraught with challenge. Their lives were often ended too short and ended by the culture itself that disagreed with them. But uh, when we look back at it historically, I think we can all recognize the greatness that um, perhaps society wasn't able to see. So maybe hold those things in your pocket. And then, yeah, just, just Google it when, when you, if you don't, if you don't have access. I mean, like the amount of times, speaking of kid lessons, that my son asks me a question where I go, hey, you know, you're lucky because your uncle Google probably knows the answer to that question. Um, and that's such a dream because I don't have to pretend like my parents did. The amount of things that my parents told me that were just super wrong that I believed for decades, like just even facts, you know, like, oh yeah, actually this, it turns out apples cause heart disease or whatever, you know, whatever random thing your parents told you because they didn't want to admit they didn't have any idea or their parents told them or their grandparents told them. We don't have to do that anymore. have this level of self-awareness that I honestly aspire to have and you are an image of positivity and have this profound wisdom to you that I think is is one of the reasons why you are so well known and why so many people follow what you do have you always been this positive and wise and in high school would you describe yourself as similar to how you are now and if not what was your journey to get where you are Oh, definitely not. I think the further back you go with anyone, you start to get into a place of um, what did your parents do to you and what did their parents do to them? And then what did epigenetics create before anyone even existed? So I, I don't want to just start in high school, but we'll just say that by that point, 
the things that really influenced me, this is the 90s, were really, really loud, aggressive music and all of the cultures that surround that. So like hardcore music and punk music in a time when all music wasn't available for free and, and, and ubiquitous. And the, the um, ethos of a lot of the things that I consumed at that point was sort of like, there's a system, let's burn it down. Uh, the system is our enemy. I grew up in the South. The system is racist. The system is sexist. The system is homophobic. The system is only about um, pushing uh, candy-coated pop culture uh, in the most blind and um, aggressive way possible. Let's rage against that. So that was my whole youth, which I wasn't like a freedom fighter or a protester. It was just more like, what's the most fun way me and my friends can get together and scream? And so uh, none of that was in any way outwardly facing uh, reflective of love or empathy or understanding. I think at the core of it, that was there in the same way that at the core of playing football, there's love or at the core of dancing, there is love. But it, but it, it certainly wasn't manifested in a way that you would say like, this person is going to sell sunshine for a living. Then when I moved away from North Carolina and moved to California, I knew that I kind of wanted to leave as much of that behind as I could, um, whether that was like a conscious effort or just a natural growth that happens when you stop defining yourself by like high school cliques. Um, that's what happened. And then, like I said, I had a kid pretty early. So uh, by the time I moved to Los Angeles, which is a place where Hollywood in particular, most people come as artists with dreams. I found myself more and more often surrounded by dreamers that had left the place that they felt inhibited them in some way. And then having a child, sort of the entire reality shifted, which is, oh, okay, now I have a responsibility to this person and I wanna do as much for that person as possible. And I wanna give them as many of the good things that I learned and, and leave as many of the bad things behind as possible. I love music and my son loves music, but I wouldn't be like, hey, here's some really aggressive metal. And I would be like, hey, here's a beautiful Stevie Wonder song about how we're all the same and we should all uplift whenever we can. That becomes a, like a conscious divorcing and uncoupling from who you were really loud aggressive music still does things for me that I'm never going to be able to take away in the same way that like vandalism still does things for me or like watching a compilation of people trying to do a skate trick and falling down a set of stairs does something for me but it doesn't do something for my son he, he, he doesn't resonate in the same way so for me to put that upon him uh, is unnecessary um, and so I look at the world in the same way right the, the world is my child because I want to give the world as much of the goodness that I give my son as possible in as many ways as I can, but it's not constant. Like inconveniences, I still am upset when someone says something to me that I feel is untrue, all of that. But I sort of try to use my child and the child of the world as a North Star where I go, okay, what's the answer? It's empathy, right? the more often we're able to stop and pause and question who we are, to admit that we are fallible and to like atone for the mistakes that we've made, just the better off things are. And that's the hardest part, like, you know, getting to that space, being able to have that conversation.
And sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't have that conversation and you might never find parody, certainly on the internet. The more people that listen to what you're saying, the more naysayers there will be. I think we saw that in the recent elections, you know, there's a certain 50% of the population of the United States that disagrees with another 50% of the population of the United States. And whether or not they will ever find parody or if it's their job to make each other see that, I don't know, but uh, perhaps having the conversation uh, slowly moves things forward. You have this experience of going on tour a lot of different places and meeting people with all different backgrounds of all ages. I'm wondering if there are any moments from doing that that stand out in your mind. So here's a, I don't know if this is positive or a negative story. I don't even know if I've, I've ever, this will be a freestyle. Let's see where it goes. There was one time, I think I was in Austin, Texas, and I was reading to, let's say, a class of maybe second graders, first or second graders. So they're not preschoolers in that they're like, can have conversations with you, but they're still pretty dopey in their malleability and like fun, right? And they're also very short-tempered and they want what they want. And they can, as a mob, when you get more than 10 of them in a room together, the tides can turn very quickly. You can lose that audience very quickly. And I think I had done a bunch of readings that day. And so let's say there's maybe 60 kids in a library and I'm at the center of the library tasked with orchestrating them like a conductor. And I've read them a book. And now comes the part where the teachers or the parents usually chime in and they impose their will on the children, which usually looks like they go, hey, doesn't everyone want an autograph? Which is a really weird concept if you're not an adult. Like the fact that a little kid would want my signature on anything really makes no sense. Like that's an adult notion. That's a societal notion. The fact that that increases the value to something by scribbling on it and, and in theory, like making it less <laughs> new is, is a kind of a bizarre reality, right? And maybe something that I wanna collectively try to disabuse people of, at least at this point in my career when this is happening, right? Because what I wanna say is we're all the same. I don't have any more value than you. Why do you want my autograph? Well, you're talking to second graders. So really, as soon as the teachers are like, doesn't everyone want this autograph? The kids are like, yay, right? And so this girl stands up in the middle of the thing and says, I want you to sign my book, right? Or sign this piece of paper. And I try to say to her, sort of what I just said to you, but maybe in more of a childlike story form, which is like, hey, I could sign your paper right now, or we could all share a moment together where we think about how valuable it is to have this experience, to be here together and to think about our hopes and dreams. And actually this experience is a signature. If you think about it, you know, we're here together and I'm here with you. And this is something no one can ever replicate. Let's have this moment together. Let's all close our eyes and we'll share this moment together as one living signature. And my friends that come along with me on tour that are the documentarians and just buddies they're watching this moment as adults and the teachers are watching this moment as adults like oh this is a really powerful idea that's happening that's being given to these children collectively and we all sit there for a moment we have this thing we close our eyes and we think about the beauty of, of the now and then i go we open we open our eyes again okay wasn't that amazing you know thank you for being here you're awesome and this is beautiful 
And then the girl goes, okay, now sign my thing. You know? And so you get to this place as, a, as an adult where eventually you have to concede that, that some of these trappings have value and that like arguing with a second grader why you will or will not sign her book can eventually become preposterous. So then you sign the thing and you say, hey, well, I'll sign your thing if you sign my thing. Here, I want your autograph, you know, and you kind of adapt and you go, all right, when is it fun to battle? And what's the class size that's necessary to get ideas across? And what age are people able to really take things in? And then, you know, from that point on, as I continue to tour, I would try to like adapt that notion whenever I could. If someone comes up and says, hey, will you autograph my, my book? I'll be like, as long as you autograph my book. And then we go back and forth with it. Or, you know, you, you try not to, again, uh, disparage someone else's dream system just because the architecture by which they arrive there might not be what you think is the most sturdy. I think that that's a great story to share. <laughs> you have this message and I think that you realize that it can be heard but not always applied in the moment. But I still think getting the message out there is super important. And I, I, I could ask you questions forever and ever, but I have a couple more before we end off here. One sure. is, I know in my life, there are some very specific things that get me so excited that I can't even handle it. I could spend an entire day doing them. I, they consume me. And I'm wondering, what gets you more excited than anything else? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think it changes uh, on a daily and maybe hourly basis. Um, but the constants that I that I feel are universal, I wouldn't say problem solving, but like knowing the answer to something, like knowing, like finding the puzzle piece, let's say if it's a metaphor, like finding the physical piece of the puzzle that you've been searching for for a while and, and knowing like, even when you pick it up going like, oh, that's the right shape. This is gonna fit. I know this is the, it's got the eyeball on it. There's the tiger's face and you put it in. Oh, what a good feeling that is. And then maybe even seeing that potential in others, like knowing, like, oh, dude, he's about to hit the home run. He doesn't even know it. He's about to hit the home run. This is going to be so good. Watching your friends accomplish their dreams. Oh, God, what a, uh, I could cry just thinking about it. And then like on a basic level, um, warm buttered bread is delicious. Um, a long walk, being able to help someone by doing what is super simple, like crossing the street or knowing directions good feeling like oh uh, you know the feeling of hitting the home run in a creative way where where you go you know choose your medium for me it's writing but like i know when a poem is great and when, or to me like i know when i'm like oh dude I, no one's done this i google it no one has used this combination of words it's like uh oh, how can no one see this oh this feels so good and I would apply that to, you know, most of my friends are artists, so musicians and painters and filmmakers. I get similar calls from them, you know, when someone, if a songwriter friend texts me and goes, have you ever heard this line before? And then you, they go, oh, it's a hit. Like, oh, I know what this feels like. That's great. Which I guess you're just describing accomplishment. Oh, I mean, and then having a child, anything that he does, like any awesome reality where he's like, makes you a card that says happy Tuesday, <laughs> you know, like just um, that would, I could, if I talked about for more than five minutes, would not be able to form sentences. So beautiful. Uh, knowing 
that again that like um that change is possible watching people change like watching oh man watching um like really steadfast older people that fit, fit traditional narratives in your head watching them change like a big masculine old man who seems like he's so set in his ways and then watching like his granddaughter make his whole reality crumble youtube videos of people doing surprises like uh soldiers coming home or like uh i've been uh, i've been away and my parents don't know i'm coming and then they knock at the door and then like the guy is crying on his knees because his mom he hasn't seen his mom in 10 years oh so good a good song someone telling their story in a way that you've never heard before um oh people like truth to power people upending a system that has oppressed them in a way that maybe the rest of the world wasn't even aware of like watching that transpire in real time is beautiful the smell of laundry is awesome when you're walking and the sprinklers are on and there's a rainbow in the midst of the sprinklers that's really good leaves in the fall are so good i don't know i mean even something as simple and and maybe could be seen as pejorative as christmas you know like what a, it's mired in tradition that might not be the the, the greatest but what a beautiful feeling it is and and the collective participation in it even for halloween like how cool is it that we all have agreed that we can just go get candy from stranger that's cool and same with christmas like the fact that we all have collectively agreed to try to like ultimately trick children into believing in magic as long as possible and that if any adult runs into any kid they're in on the gag like and there's it's we only have to talk about it Oh, is Santa going to bring you something awesome? Like, that's so cool. I mean, the list goes on. I'm hearing what gets you excited. Like, he's getting me excited. I, I think I can see how you can be such a positive person because you see excitement in everything. And I think that's so inspiring. I have one last question. Just moving forward. What are you working on right now? If you feel comfortable sharing, what do you hope to do in the future? Hmm. Well, it's my son's last year of high school. I have to keep putting him in the forefront, but especially with COVID, that's kind of become like the taken center stage, which is really like remembering to savor the last uh, morsels of youth, which is awesome. Obviously, quarantine has sort of transformed every aspect of everyone's industry but like i would say that the arts and entertainment industry will probably be at one of the tops of that list so uh, there's a bunch of projects that have been repositioned as a result of that i wrote a movie with a friend of mine that's coming out it was supposed to come out in september but i think it's going to come out in january now that'll be fun i've just been doing a lot of writing and thinking i'm fortunate in that i could take a little bit of time off and that most of my job happens from from my brain so i've just been kind of trying to think about what happens now that the person that i wrote all of the books for has certainly outgrown my target demographic uh so now i kind of get to think about like who i want to talk to and what i want to say to them if anything but maybe like i said when i started this conversation just trying to be an open vessel and allowing the incoming calls maybe to dictate the path more than the outgoing calls Okay. So that's like the most vague. I'm sorry, that's super vague. No, that's totally that's totally fine. I wish I could be like, I'm making greeting cards. Uh, check them <laughs> out on September 15th or whatever. Uh, 
Are there any concluding thoughts you have or anything you'd like to elaborate on before we end off? Um, how's high school? For me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the fact that I might only have two and a half years of actual high school is a little bit disheartening. Okay. Um, but I'm trying to do as much as I can with the time that I have left in high school. Are you guys in physical school at all or is it all remote? No, we're entirely online. There, I have a few opportunities to go into the radio station. Do you see, because one of the things that really excites me is the disruption of the education system and you know, having traveled through it in all capacities, public schools and private schools and charter schools and magnet schools and colleges and middle schools and elementary schools, you know, and then watching, doing homeschool, watching things like Khan Academy. And it's interesting to see that as terrible as the um, reality is that got us here, that perhaps the potentiality of this disruption will lead to some greater innovations. Does, does that feel like a common truth in your position? I would actually say for me, yes, because something interesting that I've noticed having school online is that majority of my time is filled up with extracurriculars, not academic work, because the workload is lighter because it's online. But I have the chance to kind of expand on all of these random, random sprawled out things that I do. Uh, and I, I really enjoy that, like taking the time to get to do this interview through my radio class and a bunch of sure. other things. Um, so I, I think having more time is allowing a lot more kids to explore what they're interested in. So I'm not sure if it will lead to changes in the system so much as kids finding out more about themselves. Uh, I feel like that those are one and the same, right? Like the more we allow the kids to learn what the, how the system isn't working for them by exploring what they love, probably the better off we all be because it certainly doesn't feel like it's gonna come from the top down, you know, like to allow the adults to decide how the education system is gonna change is, is again, just uh, fraught with too much nostalgia and history. Whereas, yeah. you know, watching a bunch of kids who whether they wanted to or not, had to be homeschooled for a year and a half or two years. And then watching what they can do with that, I think is going to be uh, so exciting. Like, and probably won't, the reality of it, that's the unfortunate part about the upending of the school system is that you don't really get to experience its benefits because you've already aged out of it by the time it's, it's revolutionized, you know? But maybe your kids and their kids um, yeah. will, be, will be better off for having had the experience. Yes. Okay. Well, Dallas Clayton, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it was wonderful. <laughs> this has been Eden on KMIH 88.9 The Bridge chatting with Dallas Clayton today on my show Garden of Eden, which you can listen to every Saturday at 10 a.m. I hope you have a great rest of your day.